life is a feast. But it doesn't have to stop when we find we're the only one at the table. This podcast is for those who feel like they are going it alone in any area of life, whether by choice or chance, for days or years. Throughout this series, we're going to talk about how we got to the table, hearkening back to middle school math class and taking tips from a whale. We're going to talk about making the most of the feast, no matter what's on your own life menu, and about the superpowers that you can build and take with you when, eventually, you're sharing the meal with others. I'm Whitney, and we'll be leading you through a bi-weekly three-course feast of perspective, empathy, and solutions to give you the confidence and virtual companionship as you navigate being a party of one in this crowded world. This is Table for One. Episode 2, The Language of Carrots. How's everyone doing? You are very welcome to join me back at the table for our next feast. Whether you are single or in a relationship, live alone, live with roommates, have a wide circle of friends or just a few, you belong here. This podcast and community is for anyone looking to figure out their relationship gaps in any area of their life, or to better recognize gaps that others around you might be experiencing that you have the power to fill. We all deserve to have meaningful relationships, whether at home, work, or elsewhere, but it can take some work and also some effort to feel fulfilled in life at the times that we are on our own. I want to throw out a disclaimer that I'm not a trained psychologist or psychiatrist, and any unreferenced content is mostly my take on things to help me process my experiences, but hopefully they make sense for you too. Aside from the three-course food for thought we'll be checking out in each episode, just listen for those bells, we'll also want to celebrate the joy of actual food as well. Yep, I'm a foodie, and if you are, you're in good company. If you follow the podcast website at tableforonepod.com or the Instagram page tableforone.pod, I'll be sharing recipes on occasion to make your own table of one a delicious experience. Okay, I'm hungry. Pull up your chair. So what do elephants, crows, dolphins, dogs, and rats all have in common? Have a think, and I'll check in with you in a minute for your answers. In episode one, we talked more generally about who might be experiencing loneliness demographically and had a brief introduction into identifying what it feels like within each of the landscapes of loneliness. For a quick recap, the landscapes are Tiny Island, Mountaintop, Redwood Forest, and Arctic Tundra, each of which embodies some combination of loneliness, whether alone or not, or whether you know the tools available for how to get out of your unique situation or not. But... If you feel like your landscape is actually Mars trying to figure out what I'm talking about, check out the episode one takeaway box on Instagram. Naturally, the conditions within each of the four landscapes have some negative connotations. We're experiencing some combination of helplessness, vulnerability, frustration, doubt, distress, and in some cases, some level of emotional self-destruction. These are heavy weights to bear while trying to navigate yourselves towards the comfort and support of reliable, deep relationships with others. But today, I want to focus on some of the positive side effects of trekking through these landscapes. And these are some serious superpowers I bet you didn't even realize that you had. Unfortunately, like many things in life, it's a catch-22. To tap into these superpowers, you have to go through the tough stuff of loneliness. But once you have, they become tools to give you a better chance of making the deeper connections that we all need. 
We're going to talk about one of these superpowers today. Did you guess what those different animals had in common? They have all demonstrated empathy. And today we're defining that as the ability to perceive, understand, and become infected with the emotions that surround us and others. In other words, it's the power to understand another's unique emotional language. Elephants have long been observed demonstrating empathy in a variety of ways. Here's one example. Lawrence Anthony was a conservationist, environmentalist, and explorer who had established a 5,000-acre reservation in South Africa for them. Because of his years of work and ability to bond with the elephants, he was nicknamed the Elephant Whisperer. When he died from a heart attack about 10 years ago, the herd traveled to the edge of his house in a procession every single night, seemingly to pay their respects. On the other end of the animal size spectrum, rats have demonstrated empathy towards their friends. One experiment found that when one rat was being soaked in water, the other immediately figured out how to operate a lever to allow the rat to escape to a dry place, also while sacrificing a guaranteed treat if he hadn't pulled the lever. These are just a few examples, though I'm sure we've all encountered empathy in animals in our own lives. When I was a little girl, I had this innate desire to have a formal study of my very own, much like an old professor in the English countryside or maybe a Renaissance inventor. We're talking globes, specimens pinned in glass boxes, a telescope, wooden models, fancy leather books, anything that represents the curiosities of the world gathered through discovery and adventure. I mean, what little girl doesn't want that? <laughs> Whew, crisis averted. My grown-up living room today now has all of those things, including an L.N. Fowler phrenology head that we've all likely seen before. It's a white ceramic bust that is a 3D reference guide to the head, with different areas sectioned off and labeled to indicate localized specific functions. Lorenzo Niles Fowler and his brother were at the forefront of reading heads in the 1800s, producing research and establishing journals and a museum about it. Similarly controversial as astrological readings, phrenology was the practice of interpreting indentations on the head, and Fowler had read thousands of heads including Mark Twain and Walt Whitman. He said, there is a perfect correspondence between the conformation of the healthy skull of an individual and his known characteristics. According to his bust, Benevolence and imitation are small areas adjacent to each other located in the left part of the head just above the forehead. And these include traits like sympathy, philanthropy, gesture, and mimicry, all of which are components similar to empathy. An area on the left side of the head at the back speaks to our characteristics regarding friendship and sociability. I couldn't help but laugh at the top right part of the head which is labeled moral and religious sentiments exactly above the slot for a coin. That aside, in today's science, the prefrontal cortex, basically right behind your forehead in a similar area to Fowler's bust, is responsible for feelings like empathy and guilt. The amygdala is responsible for recognizing fear and anxiety, the tiny little almond-shaped dude near the center of your head behind the eyes. Together, the interactions between these two areas are largely believed to be responsible for the foundations of our individual levels of empathy. In some psychopaths, it has been researched that there are reduced connections between these two areas, obviously implying that without empathy, you are prone to terrible behavior like murder. In all of us, executive functions are controlled by the frontal lobes of the brain, where the prefrontal cortex is located. This part of us is responsible for modulating and managing the emotions of the limbic system so that we can fit them into the environment that surrounds us. In men, however, 
Executive brain activity predominates in this area in terms of emotions, while for women, the limbic system leads the charge for emotions, the place which hosts the amygdala. This seems to support the popular belief that, dominated by the function which recognizes emotions in others, women naturally tend to be more emotional and have greater empathic capacities. There is also ongoing research about mirror neurons, neurotransmitters which have been identified in monkeys, and similar neurons identified in various parts of the human brain. Some studies suggest that these neurons seem to be active not only when monkeys performed a particular action, but also when they saw someone else perform a similar action, or in other words, providing the quote, neural machinery for empathy. Mirror neurons are a complex system of neurotransmitter nerve cells that are activated by perceiving any type of emotion, when we're able to view ourselves in the place of another and understand their feelings. This is all interesting, but what does it have to do with you and your unique onlyness? Barack Obama is quoted as saying something that feels like it's becoming more true by the day. That the biggest deficit that we have in society and the world right now is an empathy deficit. Case in point this past week, thank you Russian military. But through pre-election rivalry, through the need for Black Lives Matter, we've all been personally witnessing a global lack of empathy. A social experiment conducted by the BBC found that of 55,000 people, those who said they often or very often felt lonely, score higher on average for empathy for social pain than those who were not lonely. So, we have seen the need for empathy, and if you're somewhere on the loneliness spectrum, you've likely developed the superpower supply needed to come to the rescue. Clearly, animals are doing their part. We also recognize the need for empathy in society so much that we even integrate technology in our lives more willingly when it is able to provide us with empathy, and we reject it when it doesn't. When Apple kicked off in 1977, the first of their three marketing principles was empathy, with the goal of truly understanding the needs of the end user better than any other company. And look where they are now, in the loyal customer relationships they've maintained. In recent years, as autonomous vehicles are gradually piloted and inevitably integrated into our transportation networks, there's been great concern about whether to bring vehicles onto our roads that are not able to demonstrate empathy. For example, if the car has to choose between hitting a pole or a small animal in order to avoid a significant crash. Companies like Affectiva Automotive are using artificial intelligence through cameras and microphones inside cars to understand changes in human emotion, distraction, joy, laughter, and have the car respond accordingly with automatic safety features if the driver loses the capability to drive safely. So technology is also becoming more empathetic. But what about us? Let's talk about how empathy manifests itself. Much like Peter Parker and Spider-Man, it takes a while to recognize our superpower if we do it all. For me, I was having the inkling that as I was getting older, I was just becoming more emotional, a generalized recognition that didn't really mean anything. Last year, I finally realized what it actually was. I've heard of the term lachnophobia, a fear of vegetables, but I found myself staring into the fridge one night talking to and consoling a bag of carrots. <laughs> yep, you heard me. When you're living alone, you often have the luxury of doing all kinds of crazy stuff without anyone to call you out on it, but this stopped me in my tracks. I replayed the dialogue of me asking the carrots why they weren't in the crisper box with the other vegetables and talking to them about what recipe I could use them in to give them some purpose. I was clearly empathizing with their apparent social exclusion in a way that was an absolute amplification and projection of my own deep feelings of not feeling like a part of a group or socially valued. I suddenly knew the language of carrots. 
I then started to put the pieces together, like in a superhero movie slow-mo montage of similar hints of my power through my adulthood, probably not uncoincidentally when I really started to become lonely. I remembered experiences buying completely random items from small businesses with no customers because I felt sorry for them and the effort they must have put in to get to that point of having a business. I remember going to the grocery store on occasion and sometimes rescuing an item I thought was likely getting ignored on the shelf for a long time, such as a can of dubious Israeli pickles on the foreign food aisle or a clearly local brand of ketchup with a badly designed label. I then remembered as a kid making sure none of my stuffed animals or pillows felt left out in my meticulous arrangement on the bed. Through empathizing, I was trying to demonstrate solidarity, proficiency in the unique language of others, of the tragedy of feeling alone or excluded. Empathy doesn't always have to swing in the direction of sadness, though, or tragedy. We cry at weddings, empathizing with that joy at feeling commitment of love. We smile when we see babies get fitted with glasses and see their parents for the first time. We cheer in jubilation when our sports teams win. We've seen videos of people shaving their heads in solidarity when they have a close friend going through chemotherapy. We sigh with great relief and lose that tension inside when someone we care about finally gets the news about a job they interviewed for. Our hearts burst open when we see refugees reunited with relatives that they thought were killed. We crave that emotional connection. Especially with social media or even reality shows, we live vicariously through others when we're missing a specific emotional experience ourselves. We want to feel, but most importantly share, every emotion available on the spectrum because it confirms that we're alive and in this together. Back to another embarrassing vegetable story. I was in London just over two years ago, my favorite city, to have a little pre-Christmas holiday, going to my favorite shops, eating all the things, seeing the lights on Carnaby Street, visiting some girlfriends. I had booked a ticket by myself to see A Christmas Carol matinee at the Old Vic Theater. Now, I can't imagine anyone who wasn't moved by any production of this great classic, but aside from seeing the show in the land of Dickens in one of the London's greatest theaters, this one was particularly special. As the audience first drifted in to find their seats, they were warmly approached by cast members dressed in period clothing, cheerfully handing out mince pies and oranges. The lighting of the production was a mass of candles, magically illuminating the darkness. The acting was beautiful and pure, though minimal. And then came the joyous feast at the end of the story. The table was set in the center of the stage, but suddenly, 50-foot-long tablecloth banners rolled down from four corners of the balcony onto it, with cast members rolling down all of the food from the balcony like slides. All the things that you would hope to see at a proper Christmas feast, including the ham. The joy around the table on the stage was so palpable. And then, down from the ceiling, fell an army of Brussels sprouts a parachute attached to each individual sprout. And the cast of the characters was gleefully shouting and singing together on stage amidst the bounty, and I was over the edge. My face was Niagara Falls, and I couldn't not empathize with that joy of sharing the blessing of a luxurious meal with people that I loved and felt truly connected to, because although it had been years since I experienced it, I had experienced it. And at that moment, I spoke the language of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> To this day, my mom can attest, whenever I stop to recall that memory, I have tears flowing from my eyes within even 15 seconds. Empathy is truly a powerful thing. 
As lonely people, I'm dubbing empathy one of our superpowers, but the actual phenomenon of taking on the emotional state of someone else we are witnessing is called emotional contagion. To me, this sounds like the title of a sci-fi B-movie, but it also reminds me of a historical event here in Boston where I live. The molasses disaster of 1919 was just that. A tanker in the north end here, filled with two million gallons of molasses, weakened because of a sudden weather change and burst open. With a 35 mile per hour molasses flood through the city, killing 21 people and injuring 150. I think of the empathy superpower like that molasses. This potentially sweet action that combines you with another, but if unchanneled or overextended, can inflict harm. I'll talk about this in a second. So clearly I had practiced my superpower on objects that weren't necessarily in need of it, but how can we better channel our empathy to build the deep human connections, the kind that are going to populate our inner circles of friendship and prevent us from drifting into those landscapes of loneliness? With great powers comes great responsibilities and opportunities. It's completely natural that we may selectively tap into our empathy with others that we perceive are going through the exact same lonely experience as us. But we often miss connecting with others who are going through loneliness in a slightly different way. And this is the kryptonite. One of the greatest downfalls of superheroes is when they don't use their power appropriately. How many relationships have we missed out on or rejected because instead of channeling our empathy, we misinterpreted someone's shyness as coldness. Someone's social anxiety is a lack of interest. Someone's quiet thoughtfulness is being aloof. Or someone's confidence is narcissism. I've been on the receiving end and also the misinterpreting end on many occasions. If you checked out the Instagram table for one pod this week, there's a series of images depicting some examples of the wide range of what loneliness in others might look like. Unless we are going through that same kind of loneliness, it can often be nearly imperceptible to us. But when we put empathy first and take the proactive step of making that first connection, even with others that seem out of our familiarity zone, we can practice tapping into the emotional language of a wider range of people and therefore potentially build a wider foundation of relationships. On the other hand, the kryptonite for superheroes is letting the bad guy drain your power. If we over-empathize, we may put ourselves in the position of always being the one that people come to to unburden themselves, instead of setting boundaries so that the empathy molasses doesn't flood anywhere. This toxic empathy points out the need for caution and also cognizance of your self-worth. To prioritize investing in relationships only where there is reciprocal empathy and shared value for each other. How do we learn that balance and use our empathy to connect in healthy and meaningful ways? There is no guidebook, but leave it to the Dutch to one-up us. <laughs> Did you know that Denmark is one of the few places in the world that since 1993 teaches kids to be empathetic when they're young in school? For kids ages 6 to 16, an hour every week is dedicated to Klassen's Teed, a time for students to discuss their problems, related to school or not, and the whole class, together with the teacher, tries to find a solution based on real listening and understanding. This focus on mental health and communication at a young age has been referenced a lot for its potential correlation with Denmark consistently being at the top of the list as one of the happiest countries in the world. Hooray! But how sad is it that we have to think of this as a revolutionary approach? Because as outspoken and seemingly open as Americans are perceived to be, we still haven't completely figured out how to talk about our feelings and work through our problems together, which is really the basis of any relationship worth having. There are two techniques to, one, better channel our superpower and start speaking the language of others who could potentially become some of our closest friends, 
or two, to better understand the language of those already in our social circles. And those techniques are listen and ask questions. Simple, right? Familiarity with those who are a regular part of our lives can often lead to laziness as well. We forget that great relationships never stop requiring two-way effort and intentional communication to be meaningful. When was the last time that you had a heart-to-heart to find a way to connect with the people in your lives that wasn't a byproduct of a negative conversation that began with, we need to talk, or something's been bothering me? We can take cues from some of the great broadcast journalists in our recent history to better learn how to bring empathy into conversations that end with authentic connection. Or similarly, think about Oprah and her ability to garner a following of millions because of her skills in asking engaging questions, using active listening, and using body language to demonstrate that she truly was empathizing with her guests. People like her who focus on empathy can become a social magnet, and people are drawn into that energy of the spark of mutual understanding. But communication skills are certainly learned skills and don't come as naturally for some. I deal with some social anxiety myself, and I completely get that. So here's six of many tips that I snagged from WikiHow that build on those key actions of listening and asking questions. Number one, talk back. When you're listening, paraphrase back what the person said so that they know you understood them. And then reflect back an appropriate emotional reaction because it helps the person regulate their responses and make sense of them in the world. Number two, withhold snap judgments. This is a tough one. Try to override this by asking more questions to better understand the context of what you're reacting to so that you can find something to latch onto that helps you better relate. Number three, open up. To truly practice empathy is a two-way connection that requires you to share your own inner landscape with someone else. Instead of responding, I don't know, to a potentially personal question, make the effort to put some thought into it. Number four, physical affection. When it's appropriate, put a hand on the person's shoulder, offer a hug, add that extra level of letting the other person know that they are accepted. Number five, observe. Focus your attention outwards instead of inwards in your daily life. Be more conscious about your surroundings and what's going on with other people as you move from A to B. Number six, offer help. This shows that you see what someone is going through and want to make life easier for them even if it's just holding a door open or making the offer to help, like getting coffee for a colleague who you know hasn't had time to take a break in between meetings. These are relatively simple tips, but I love that they remind me that conscious effort is the key to bridging loneliness to a potential connection with others. I remember random connections that I've made with strangers over the years, and even when it was just for 10 seconds, it was really memorable and made my life feel more full. So as you practice actions like these and harness your superpower, you'll be speaking not just the language of carrots, but the language of friendship, the language of business. P.S. Empathy is one of the top traits sought by employers. The language of diplomacy and really the language of humanity. Let's show those elephants and dolphins and rats and dogs what we've got. To wrap up our meal, we're going on a quick field trip. We are heading to the Empathy Museum, a great pop-up social experiment that was taking place in some cities around the world a few years ago. Imagine walking into a giant shoebox that looks like it belongs to someone 50 feet tall. You tell someone your shoe size and are handed a randomly selected box holding someone else's shoes. 
You put on the shoes and go for a walk at your own pace while listening on headphones to the owner of the shoes tell you a story about their lives. Something that happened to them while they were wearing these shoes. Through this empathy experience, you are literally walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Whether it's a pair of Crocs who had saved the life of a young boy while he was accidentally electrocuted. The flip-flops of someone who had lost their memory due to a car crash. Or the military boots of a war veteran. We love stories. And when we stop to listen, we undoubtedly find something that we connect with. So, I'm asking you and myself this week, who have you maybe overlooked in your life that your empathy superpower might reveal a better connection with? You're totally welcome to try in a stranger's shoes, but for a start, I'm challenging you to record a story of someone using some of the empathy techniques that we've talked about today. We've all got recording capabilities on our phones, so all it takes is setting aside 10 minutes even. The goal here is to ask questions about a topic that goes below the surface, something that maybe you've wished others would ask you to get to know you better. I'll include some examples of questions in this episode's takeaway box, but think about those that begin with things like, what experience made you decide? Or what was it like for you when? Or how did you know that? And you can ask anyone, a grandparent you haven't had contact with in a while, a neighbor who lives in your building but you've only passed by in the hallways, or even a boyfriend or girlfriend that you've fallen into a bit of a relationship rut with. When we give the chance for stories, we, as the novelist Mohsen Hamad says, give empathy a chance to find the echoes of ourselves in another. Thanks for joining me. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe or join the Instagram page at tableforone.pod, where you'll find resources shared from each episode along with other fun content. And feel free to send me a message. Introduce yourself. Share a favorite recipe. Let me know a topic about loneliness that you'd like me to cover. Whatever. And remember, no matter who is or isn't at your table, there's a life feast available for you. See you in two weeks.